if, if the physical world is emerging out of something deep and we are built out of that stuff, then we have the capacity to go that deep. If in the right frame of mind or consciousness, you are the universe. Welcome to Energy Matters, exploring awakening to your authentic self and finding purpose through mind, body, and soul. With your hosts, Cody Edner and David Gandelman. Brought to you by intuitivevision.net and groundedmind.com. Hey, you telepathic, psychic, psychokinetic X-Men and women who listen to Energy Matters. Welcome back to <laughs> a really special episode. Today we have the chief scientist of the Institute of Noetic Sciences on Dr. Dean Radin. Cody, I'm super excited to share this episode with everyone. I'm cool. very excited to have Dr. Dean Radin on as well. And his new book, Real Magic, is so cool. And yeah. Specifically, we could just say that psychic phenomenon and being psychic is real. Dr. Radin has done 40 years of research on it. And actually, the Institute of Noetic Sciences began, hopefully I have this story right, when Edgar Mitchell, a NASA astronaut, was coming back from space. He's in the space shuttle, and he had this epiphany, this moment of awareness and feeling of oneness with the entire universe he didn't know what it was or what it was about. He came back to Earth, decided to explore consciousness that eventually birthed the Center for the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And that's where Dr. Dean Radin comes in. He has some amazing books, two and over 250 articles out there, endless YouTube videos on really cool topics uh, like telepathy, psychic phenomenon, pretty, pretty cool stuff. And he is way more intelligent than Cody and I put together. So we <laughs> hope you really enjoy this episode. It's, if you're listening to this by audio, uh, you can also go on YouTube it, uh, and our website. Most likely it'll be available. You can watch the video, video of all of us. And oh, before we jump in, as always, energymatterspodcast.com. Get on the newsletter if you would like to rate the podcast. That would warm our hearts. <laughs> Bring some warmth, in, warmth into Cody's cold heart by rating the podcast. I would be so happy. <laughs> you would be. That would make for Cody's birthday. That would make uh, my day. And if you, I mean, this whole episode, we talk about different intuitive abilities. And, you know, Cody and I, our, our entire careers and teaching is how to develop those abilities and deepen into them. So if you listen to this and you get excited and you're like, all right, how do I actually get into it and do it? Uh, we've made available our Awakening Energy course and our Intuitive Training course for download through, through the site. So if that's something that intrigues you, let us know. If you can't afford it, let us know. Maybe we can help you with a scholarship or something. We want to make sure everybody can meditate and get whatever that it is that they need to develop. So uh, without further ado, Dr. Dean Radin. Hey everybody, welcome to the Energy Matters podcast. We have a very, very special guest for you today, Dr. Dean Radin, the Chief Scientist of the Institute of Noetic Sciences. Welcome, Dean. Thank you. And of course, Cody Edner, my co-host here. Hey everybody. <laughs> uh, Dean, I wanted to start with a quote from your book from Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, he says, the only way of discovering the limits of the possible is to venture a little way past them into the impossible. And that's, I think, what you've been doing your entire career, and especially with this new book, Real Magic. Can we start by you telling us a bit about the book and why you wrote it? Well, the book is called Real Magic because it's about real magic. <laughs> a magician would put a, a K at the end of magic. I decided not to do that because it unfortunately has connotations that are usually considered negative by many people. The other reason is that the, uh, the editor I work with at uh, Penguin Random House has a very good sense of what it is that will attract people. And so while the book is about magic, it's really a book about science and philosophy. Mm -hmm. So if I use the either word science or philosophy anywhere in the title, no one would look at it. <laughs> so the editor is quite uh, smart about what he does. And he came up with the, the title Real Magic. And I said, oh, okay, let's go with it. And you said, Dean, I've heard you say that for 39 of the 40 years that you've been doing this research, 
that uh, you did not think of yourself as studying magic and only in the last year, right before you started this book, that you started to think of it as magic. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, it's true that I've, I've been studying psychic phenomena for, for, for over 40 years now. And when you're, when you're working in a controversial field like that as a scientist, you, you have, you're always on a seesaw balancing your credibility. So we've learned that while there probably is overlaps between reports of UFOs, especially contacts with creatures from UFOs and parapsychology, we don't talk about UFOs or, or contact with ETs or anything like that because it, in, in the public's mind, it starts mixing anomalies and it becomes an explosive mixture after a while. So we, we don't touch things uh, outside of a very limited band in order mm. to maintain credibility, even though these phenomena are, are everywhere, basically, in all lots of different contexts. So if someone had said then, well, that you're, you're doing magic, that would sound crazy to me. So in fact, the, a couple of years ago, uh, a big book was published called Handbook of Parapsychology for the 21st Century. It, it has something like 40 or 50 articles written in the academic style in this big format book, which is the state of the art in parapsychology. And the word magic does not appear in the index. Mm -hmm. wow. So our anthropologist colleagues have been trying to get us to pay attention to indigenous practices forever because mm -hmm. it's an important part of anthropology. But we've collectively decided, no, we're, we're, you know, we'll, we'll pay attention to it in, in an academic sense, but not seriously. So that changed for me when la my last book was called Supernormal, and it was about the Eastern esoteric practice of yoga. And so the uh, yoga practice from a classical perspective, the Yoga Sutras, is interesting because the book of classical yoga has an entire section devoted to the cities, which is the yogic version of psychic phenomena, basically. Right. So it's not simply that it's talking about the cities, but it gives recipes for how to do the cities. And this is part of yoga and meditation. So the current book, Real Magic, is about the Western esoteric tradition. And so this was just uh, balancing the Eastern side with the Western lore. And the moment you begin to do that, you immediately run up against tales of magic. So all of the esoteric traditions, from, starting from uh, shamanism through Pythagoras and Hermeticism and Neoplatonism and the whole shebang, up to the present day, it's all about magic. Hmm. And so I started looking into well, what, do, what do people mean by magic? And then matching it against what we study in parapsychology. And to my somewhat surprise, not too surprised, somewhat, it, there's an exact one-to-one -one match. So magical practices is what parapsychology has been studying by another name. And you, you say in your book there are three branches of magic. So we have divination, force of will, and if I, am I pronouncing this right, theurgy. Can you, can you explain these three branches of magic that you go into? So divination is perception through space or time. The, the stereotyped image is looking at a crystal ball or looking at a mirror or tarot cards, or you name it, lots of things. So that's one part of it. That's part of the practice. The other part is something I call force of will. It doesn't, there are lots of different names that are used in magical practice, but I use force of will because it, it suggests what's going on. It's that your intention has a certain force to it and can manipulate the world. Mm. That's the popular way of thinking about magic, Harry Potter-like magic. Mm. And then the third is theurgy, which is a combination of two Greek words, theo meaning godlike and urgy meaning work. So the, the god work here is communicating with spirits. So in each category, perception through space or time, uh, your intention affecting the physical world and communicating with, or at least in the case of parapsychology, studying the possibility of independent spirits, that's the match. It's, it's one to one. There's, there's actually nothing left out of that match at all. Oh, interesting. Wow. You know, you, you mentioned in your, in your book too, and, and we all kind of know this, that magic is portrayed, you know, and exaggerated into these big terms in movies. And 
whenever they kind of usurp a word and and make it something that's not um then it makes it hard to use it like you know you're saying you can't you can't really use it as a researcher um and yet magic is also as a practitioner of energy awareness meditation that kind of thing it's a very subtle part of the world right it's kind of touching the subtle part of the world um so why should we care about that what what is the argument i mean i have my my own but what it, what have you discovered about the importance of that level of awareness bringing it to people and how we might use it to better life that's several different questions yes combined so why why which why should we be interested in concepts like magic uh one is that it suggests that we have capacities that are associated with consciousness that are either not being talked about or are being worse, being dismissed as not being uh, feasible or plausible. Uh, and all of those capacities, like any capacity that we have, it's like uh, we all decide we're going to suddenly stop hearing. We're all going to just turn our hearing off. It won't matter. So that would be stupid. It restricts our, uh, our ability to interact with reality. So magic, in a sense, can be thought of as another set of senses, both a way to perceive the world and a way to interact in the world. And to simply cut that off because we decided it's a taboo and we don't want to talk about it, that restricts who and what we are. Mm-hmm. So that's one reason. Cool. Another reason is that uh, from a, the Western secular viewpoint, which is basically everywhere in the world now, even people who are very religious actually hold a Western viewpoint because civilization is constructed around it. There's still some countries out there that are theocracies and they they live in a kind of different bubble, different way of of viewing the world. Uh, But the vast majority of people in in the educated West, let's say, uh, live within a certain worldview. That worldview, which is materialism, has been extremely successful which is why we can do this podcast with us all in different locations. And, you know, that's pretty good. So that we can't deny that materialism is valuable as a way of thinking about reality. The question is, is that all there is? What is typically taught is, yeah, that's it. We're in a material universe. That's all that there is. And that, that design of a, of a worldview is nihilistic. Mm-hmm. It means that the universe is pointless. Mm-hmm. Everything is random. There's no meaning to anything. What you do doesn't actually matter. You're going to die. You're dead. And that's the end of it. That leads to a way that people will live, which in a larger sense, it leads to a model of civilization. And so in a larger context, uh, if materialism is completely correct, then the best that you can possibly do as an individual is to die with the most toys. Right. <laughs> and and it, it gives rise to this, this crazy uh, inequity that we see where something like 10 people own half of the wealth in the entire world. Yeah. That's, that doesn't seem right. If you look through the uh, cycles within history and that cycle always ends up in disaster. Yeah. Right. So we're clearly heading towards that. Uh, and that, that's not a good sign. The other thing is that, a uh, nihilistic universe also leads to the notion that uh, dying with the most toys means use everything you possibly can as quickly as you can, which is not sustainable, and we're seeing the consequences of that now as well. Mm-hmm. So, so we have pragmatic reasons, philosophical reasons, and then, of course, there are scientific and scholarly reasons that are related to the big questions. The big questions of who am I, why are we here, and all that. Well, those are questions about the nature of reality and our role in it. And so when magic is saying, just like psychic phenomena actually are implying, that our, our normal way, our everyday way of viewing reality is not complete. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, for a scientist or a scholar, that's not a surprising thing to say. But for a lot of people who, are, who don't care about science or philosophy or scholarship or whatever, it might be surprising because most people are fully engaged in the everyday world until something massive happens when they start thinking about mortality and the big questions. And then 
knowing the nature of reality and our role in it becomes extremely important. And there's, you can have a smorgasbord of, of reality stories that you pick from. My, my own version of it is to go through science because it is something that can be checked, right? I'm a natural skeptic, like most scientists are, and I prefer to be able to check for myself that the reality story that I'm adopting is actually true. Mm -hmm. Long-winded answer to a complex <laughs> question. How did you decide at a certain point in your career, because I know you were an electrical engineer, you have a degree in, uh, in uh, transpersonal psychology, how did you decide at a certain point that you wanted to study uh, psychic phenomena, psi phenomena, uh, parapsychology? Actually, my doctorate's in psychology. It's in psychology, uh, wow. Yeah, not transpersonal. When I graduated, there was no transpersonal psychology. Right. Uh, how did I decide to do this? Because uh, if you take the um, one billion children who have read Harry Potter and became enthralled with it and are now adults, some of them are going to think, I wonder if that stuff is real. Mm. Or you can say, uh, take the billion children who read science fiction a lot when they were children or, or fairy tales. Some of them are going to think, that seems more like than fantasy. It seems like there's really, they're talking about something real here. For most people who get that sense, and I was one of them, that there's something real underneath this. It's very similar to when Joseph Campbell was talking about mythology, that the reason why mythology works is because it contains a kernel of truth underneath it. It's presented in the form of allegory and stories and so on, but there's something real about it. Well, the same is true for fairy tales. Fairy tales are allegories that are very similar to mythology. They oftentimes capture some element of truth. Same is true with science fiction, same is true with, with the magical literature. So the only difference that, that uh, I guess that I did, that many did not, is uh, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't willing to accept a story without testing it. So I was curious about whether these phenomena are real, originally psychic phenomena, but magical as well. And I started testing it. And you wanted to put Harry Potter in the lab and see what he could do. <laughs> yeah. 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 I wanted to test it. And so besides uh, primarily being involved in music, from age five to 25, I was on the concert violinist track. Uh, I also had spent a lot of time as a kid with uh, little science kits and with, uh, with making electronic circuits and all that. I always like to make stuff, which is again related to this idea of, I don't wanna just be given something, I wanna know how it works. Hmm. I wanna build it as well. So that's the engineering side. Right. The psychology side was useful in retrospect, because it also gives you tools for, and methods for evaluating whether something is real or not, especially things that are related to the mind. Mm -hmm. So it kind of all came together, I suppose. And I've heard you say that uh, even in psychology, often what they're studying is behavior, uh, and it's still almost not the inner world, and that you were really, even as a child, really interested in the depths of the inner world. Mm -hmm. um, was there a moment when you were a kid where you had this, just this thought, this idea of like, what's really going on on the inside? Did something, did, was there an impetus, an outside impetus like your parents or what, what happened? How did that come about? I, I don't know. There wasn't any specific event that I remember. Uh, what I do know is that for the 20 years that I was playing the violin on my music stand, almost from the very beginning was a, uh, a, a message that my teacher put up there and it just left it there that said, learn to listen. So that is for a stringed musician or a musician using a, a non-fretted stringed instrument, your intonation, you, you have to listen, otherwise it's not gonna work very well. So for many, many years, I have this message in front of me for hours a day saying, learn to listen. And you do, you spend a lot of time in a, in a recursive loop learning to listen to whether what you're doing is correct or not. So my guess is that maybe somewhere along the line, after your body learns how to do the mechanics of playing, that your mind is, allowed, is free to do other things. And oftentimes I would practice and read at the same time, or practice and read and watch TV at the same time. Wow. Because a lot of it is simply getting, making your body 
like an athlete to, to do it on its own. And if it, you can't get to that level, you're not going to be a very good musician. So it took maybe, I don't know, three or four years before I started running on automatic pilot. And so for many, many years, I was doing what amounts to a kind of movement meditation without thinking of it in those terms. But in retrospect, it was probably something like that. But that said, I don't recall as a youth any experiences that I would call psychic. Uh, no one in my family ever mentioned anything like that. We, it was just not a topic of conversation. It never came up. The only place I ever saw it was in fairy tales and science fiction and in the uh, amazing stories of the mystic masters of the East. Mm. That's it. And isn't it fascinating that the movies that all make the most money, Marvel, DC, Harry Potter, Matrix, uh, Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, you name it, they all have the, this magical lore to it. And everyone Star is Wars. so attracted to Star Wars. <laughs> they're so attracted to it. And then you present them with, there's a possibility that this, that's real in your own life. And they're like, whoa, 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 no way. <laughs> Actually, no. So, uh, the, well, you're right. A lot of people do believe it. Yeah, a lot of people do believe it, and and we know that that's the case because the uh, the books on affirmations, law of attraction, that sort of thing, they're extremely popular. Yeah. So we did a survey. This came out after the book was already in the bag, so it's not in the book. We did a survey uh, among the general population and among scientists and engineers to simply ask which of 25 different kinds of psychic experiences have you experienced? Not that you believe in it or not, but whether you have experienced it. So among, there are actually three groups. The third group was psychic enthusiasts, which were members of IONS where, where I work. <laughs> so <clears throat> we, we have something like 50,000 members of IONS. And so the, they answered the question. And then for the general population and scientists and engineers, we hired a company that gives you um, a broad-based listing of, of emails of people who will respond to questionnaires. So they've already vetted the <laughs> demographics. So among uh, IONS members, 99% said that they had experienced at least one of 25 different phenomena, and on average 13. Wow. So not surprisingly, they were interested in the psychic phenomena. Uh, the general public uh, said 94% had at least one of the 25 phenomena, of which 7.7% uh, .7 on average, or 7.7 .7 out of the 25 on average. So what was the one that was most common? Was there one that stood out? It probably something like gut feelings. Gut feelings. Yeah. What, which we uh, might gut, call well, like... Gut, gut feelings that later came true. Not oh. just a feeling, but a feeling that came true. Mm. Uh, and then... So then the question is, well, what do scientists and engineers say? Because typically our, our stereotype of a scientist or engineer is somebody who says this is nonsense. But there, the answer was 93% said that they have had experienced personally wow. at least one of the 25. And on average, they said eight. So it was actually slightly more than the general public, eight out of 25. Mm. So this basically says that uh, we are told in public to deny any interest in this sort of thing, but it's absolutely not true. The vast majority of people, including scientists and engineers, are very interested in these things. And yeah, actually and experience it firsthand. Have experienced it. Crazy. Right. What, why do you think we, the mind just wants to deny it? Or do you think it's culture? I mean, is it in the individual that we kind of struggle and deny it? Is it bigger than that? Is it cultural? Where does that come from? Some of it is cultural, for sure. Yeah. So when, when I go to India or Malaysia or anywhere in Southeast Asia, everyone accepts this stuff. In fact, it, it's paradoxical because it's so well accepted that in the academic world, nobody wants to study it because why bother? Mm. Like, you know, it's like air. Well, why would anyone even want to study this stuff? <laughs> uh, in, the, in the West, meaning primarily the United States or North America, uh, it is taboo. It's one of those things you don't talk about in public and that's so people don't. Part of it is related to fear. Right. So the United States is one of the most religious countries in the world. We don't often think of ourselves in that way, but it, we're, we're saturated with many, many different varieties of, of religious belief 
and including some of the most fundamentalist beliefs. So in the most fundamental religions, magic, psychic phenomena are considered evil or demonic. It's, it's, and you can trace why that is so. I talk about this in the book, that it's a, basically for social control reasons, mm -hmm. that you simply declare, don't do magic because it, it's demonic. You'll go blind. <laughs> at least you'll go blind. <laughs> and everyone you ever know will go blind at the same time. So part of it is also then not just religious-oriented fear, but fear of loss of sovereignty. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people mm -hmm. don't like the idea at all that someone can know everything, that, even your secret things that you don't want people to know about. Mm -hmm. So who wants that, right? I mean, we all get uh, uh, flustered by thinking that somebody got a hold of our Facebook page. We're here talking about much worse than that. <laughs> it's not just what you have written down somewhere, but what's in your head and in your past and in your future and on and on and on. So it, it generates fear. So that's one of the reasons the taboo is sustained. And the other reason is that our, our spokespeople for science, there are a couple of big name scientists who are always the, the ones who are asked about scientific questions. Almost all of them will say that ESP and that sort of thing is impossible. Like it's mm -hmm. scientifically impossible, therefore it doesn't exist, therefore anybody who talks about it is either delusional or intentionally fraudulent. Right. And, and the media echoes that. And so that becomes a story and, and nobody wants to push against that story. Right. So it, it also sustains the taboo. And the situation is very different in other countries. So this is like a US centric thing. Yeah, thing. Yeah, and, interesting. And Dean, you say in your book, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, that 75% of Americans believe in some kind of phenomenon, like whether it's ghosts, telepathy, uh, clairsentience, uh, yet there's only 0.001% of scientists doing any research on this kind of phenomena. Is that, that is much easier to get a PhD with a dissertation on Buffy the Vampire Slayer <laughs> than it is to get a dissertation on whether telepathy is actually real. That's right. And, and that, that is because of how taboo this is. Yeah. Yeah, well, because popular culture is fine. Right? Right, you don't, you exactly. don't have to talk about whether vampires are real or anything of like that. You're talking about the, the way that culture incorporates these things. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so, Dean, you've, you've written, uh, I think it's five or six books now, over 250 uh, peer-reviewed articles. You've got so much research out there, 40 years of research out there. Uh, and after all this research and exploring all of this different phenomenon, is there something that stands out to you where if you could just say to people, look at this one thing, if you don't believe anything else, look at this one study or look at this one ability that people seem to have and study this more and it will change your mind. And I know that like telepathy tends to stand out as something that's more easily uh, replicatable than a lot of the others. Is there something that you would point to and go to at least look at that? I've given up on trying to convince anybody of anything. Hmm. And, and realistically, I don't have to, because as we just already said, 90% of people have had these experiences. Right. So it, the only reason why it would be useful to break the taboo is because I, I know that there are people who are in prominent positions within the major funding agencies, both private and public mm -hmm. funding agencies, who would love to fund this stuff, mm -hmm. but can't mm -hmm. because of the, the social contract that we have. So to try to convince any random person is a complete waste of time. So I don't even try to do that. Mm -hmm. What I do is if I'm invited to speak to people who are in positions of authority who can make decisions, then I'll be happy to try to persuade them that there's something interesting going on. Oftentimes they are persuaded, but they fully understand the taboo and they're not willing to go against it. So mm -hmm. this is in many ways uh, a public relations question. It's the, you know, the, how do you get people to accept same-sex marriage? Well, the, the idea of it's been around for a long, long time and it took decades of, of work by lots of people in order to bring it to a point in, in the, 
the, the social construct where suddenly now it's okay. And another example is the Me Too movement, right? So this has been, this kind of thing has been going on forever with women. Uh, now it is suddenly, it, it reaches a threshold and then the dam breaks. Something like that is going to happen with this taboo as well. Because this taboo is very similar to many others that are sustained for reasons of status quo and that sort of thing. But if it's a real phenomenon, if it's something real going on and it's meaningful for people, the taboo eventually breaks. Interesting. So I, I mean, I play, I play my role in it by writing books and doing podcasts yeah. and whatever. Eventually it makes a difference. And so one example is that uh, the, about a week ago, the end of May 2018, a major article came out in a, a journal called American Psychologist. So American Psychologist is the flagship journal of the American Psychological Association. So this is the academic mainstream organization for psychologists, academic psychologists. And if something is published in American Psychologist, it means it has floated to the top of everything that psychologists should know. Mm. And the mainstream takes, watches that. So there's a major article by a colleague of mine from the University of Lund in Sweden talking about the evidence for psychic phenomena. So he talks about 10 meta-analyses, which together is roughly a thousand different published experiments, and concludes that based on the empirical data that these phenomena are as real as any other phenomena that is studied in psychology. So that's big. Wow. Because the, the breaking of the, the taboo means that the editors of these big journals have to become comfortable enough with what is being said so that they could support it themselves. Right. So we've, we've reached some threshold there. That's incredible. Well, I'm going to have to look up that article. Maybe we can yeah. put it in the show notes. Um, do you know, I would love to talk about <laughs> something that really caught me in your book that I loved. You, you, you talked a bit about ex extraterrestrials and if they were looking, I'm paraphrasing, but if they were looking down at us at, at earth, they would essentially find a species that mostly is sleeping, pooping and crying. <laughs> I highlighted that in my Kindle and I'm like, I'm bringing this up to Dean. Um, and at the same time, you say that like one of your, uh, something that you really would love to explore would be other galaxies, other universes, other places. Mm -hmm. And if we were to wait for warp drive to work out, it would be that it would take forever, essentially. Um, I guess my question is, do you, I guess the question really is if, if, uh, if you do have these abilities that I mean, Cody, you know, we teach this stuff, we do, uh, experience these abilities. Do you find yourself in a place where you believe that we can communicate to other beings out there and to tr traverse the universe with our minds and explore in a way that doesn't involve taking our bodies with us? Sure. Right. Uh, the best we can do on earth with uh, clairvoyance tests is one side of the earth to the other. Uh, we know that that works. Mm -hmm. So, it's a little bit like testing the notion of non-locality in, in an entanglement sense. We, we're limited by the distance on, on Earth, uh, but we have every reason to believe that entanglement is not limited by space at all. Right. And I think likewise, there's no reason to believe that uh, psychic perception is limited by space or time. In fact, I think it is actually outside of space and time, and that's the reason why it works in the first place. Right. And, and yeah. to go a little deeper into that, is there, a, if you could travel anywhere and experience any ki kind of civilization, is there a certain type that you would want to experience? Is there like a place you'd want to go with a certain kind of civilization that you could explore and be a part of that's different than this one? Like, wh what is it? Because I have the same thing, Dean. I've had it since I was a kid. I was like, I want to go to every corner of the universe. I want to see everything. And it drives me crazy that I'm stuck here <laughs> with these sleeping, pooping, crying people. <laughs> Damn you all. Yeah. Uh, and I have to do those things as well. And that's annoying. And so, uh, yeah, was there, is there something in particular that you would want to see out there? Well, I, I think the, the first thing I would do would, would be to reproduce the Powers of Ten movie. But I don't know that one. 
Oh, yeah, this is a very famous thing where uh, you start with a, a picture of somebody uh, uh, just like in a park laying down on a, on a, um, a towel and the first thing that the movie would do is go 10 times closer to the person and, and uh, end up like in a cell and then 10 times in and 10 times in and keep doing that over and over again until we get down to the smallest that we can imagine. And of course, yeah. in the process, visually, it's very nice because you get to see in greater, greater detail, but what we end up with at the bottom is like quarks or something like that. And then it reverses and it goes back in the other way. So in the other way, right. you end up eventually at the universe, like the and whole universe. The same. So yeah, look up Powers of Ten movie and it, it's very nice to see visually. So I would want to do that and experience that, not just watch it, but like be there because there's no reason I shouldn't be able to do that with clairvoyance either. Mm -hmm. In fact, I have colleagues who have been doing things like using remote viewing to look at viruses, uh, like, like viruses that we're not quite sure what they are yet and trying to, to clairvoyantly see the virus and describe it. And then later we can check to see whether or not it's correct. You actually have colleagues working on that. Yeah. So, and it, it's, and of course, and the opposite is true also. It's just that if you go too far out in the universe, it's hard to verify whether what you're seeing is correct. Right. So right. We're, we're still kind of limited into normal human size scale of space and time in order to verify it. But I know plenty of remote viewers who were looking at Mars a million years ago and describing all kinds of interesting things. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's not true. That's why we. That's why we're constrained in terms of the verification. So at some at some point, if we if we get super good at uh, at clairvoyance, then in a sense you don't need verification for yourself personally. Mm -hmm. You go into a dreamy state and you just start exploring Andromeda, mm -hmm. see right. what 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 is there to look at. So I don't have any particular place in space because I don't know it well enough to be able to say, yeah, I want to go to that vacation spot because that one's really good. I'm, I'm more interested in, and by the way, my, my interest in, the, in going to other galaxies is partially as a result of traveling around the, the Earth. So mm -hmm. I, some people extensively travel, and I haven't done that, but I've been to many places, and you, you learn very quickly what the scope of what it's like to be on Earth is. And, and that combined with travel logs and nice documentaries and stuff, I kind of get it. So I, I, I get the earth. I'm ready for something very different. <laughs> yeah. Experience something more. Yeah. I like yeah, that. And may, maybe it's more, more primitive than we are. Maybe it's way more advanced. But the reason why I have the, the, a bit in one of the chapters about search for extraterrestrial intelligence is that there you have... Uh, people getting millions, sometimes $10 million a year to use what amounts to radio to look for extraterrestrial <laughs> people. And I think it's the stupidest thing in the world. <laughs> it's like if you talk about a waste of money, yeah. holy smoke. <laughs> so the, the idea of it is great. We, we want to know if we're alone in the universe or not. So the idea is great. But what I would do if I had that money is say, okay, we're going to get really good clairvoyance and test them a lot and make sure that they're really good, figure out a way when they're hot, and then send their minds off into space to contact the others out there who could be millions of years ahead of us and are very likely to not care a whit about radio, but right. care a lot about consciousness. And yeah. in fact, as I said in the book, that they will not even admit us into uh, any kind of organization that there may be out there until we have surpassed the threshold of being the pooping babies. Because, <laughs> right. You know, you don't invite babies to join the UN. That's basically it. That's right. Nikki yeah. Kaku talks about, sorry, Cody, like the zero civilization, the one, the two, oh. and uh, we're still at a zero, essentially. We're still consuming the resources of the planet we live on to survive. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which I think that is another argument for why to break that taboo, because we're never going to get to that place of expanded consciousness, consciousness until it's okay to really talk about the experiences, explore them openly, put money into researching them, all kinds of things like that. When you bring, so we're talking about psychic experience on a lot of different levels now. Um, 
and awareness and consciousness. So there's kind of consciousness, there's the experience of pure awareness, there's our inner relationship with physical reality. How do you talk about the difference of consciousness, awareness, pure awareness, psychic perception, physical reality, um, and the relationship between all of those? Do you have a kind of a way to talk, talk to that for people? It depends on who I'm talking to. So if, if it's a general population that doesn't think very much about consciousness, it's not something to think about, I'll say well, what I'm talking about is awareness. Mm-hmm. It's your in, internal experience, the thing that you say me, the, the thing that's experiencing something. If you're talking to people who are meditators or spend a lot of time thinking about this, and you have to be more careful in how you talk about it because awareness is part of it, just right. pure awareness, but there are many, many layers to consciousness like everyday conscious awareness, many, many altered states, deep levels of consciousness. And the book, I talk about consciousness with a, l- a little C and a big C to make the distinction there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it depends on who I'm talking to and how much they've thought about this issue. Well, in our audience is probably mostly meditators and um, people who are aware that energy is real. So you might call it magic and they're wanting to learn how to interact more from that level of awareness in the world and to bring that into the world. And I think they're keenly aware that uh, just as important as behavior in the world is where you're coming from energetically in the world, that energy really matters in, in our, not only our perception, but our interactions and the outcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so I think, you know, that is our audience, the people that would really be interested in all those subtle levels of how you describe consciousness and how we relate to it and how we can get to some of those levels even. Well, there, the, the, uh, in the magical traditions, you want to get to the state of gnosis. And the exact same state, I think, is what the yogis would say is samadhi. Uh, in, in English, we would say it's, it's a mystical or a union experience. So that's where the cities occur in, in the yogic sense, and that's where magic happens. And that's probably where psychic phenomena originate as well. Mm-hmm. And so from that, that level of depth, and you, as meditators, you, you would know after a while, you, you begin to strip away the monkey mind and you, you are able to maintain awareness down to levels that we would normally be asleep and right. then before sleep and deeper and deeper. And the further, quote, down you go, the, the, more, the more you're in contact with what I think is the fabric of reality. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I guess I, I often talk about, or I talk about in the book, certainly about idealism as the philosophical basis for what I think is going on, more than materialism. But it's actually not quite material. It's not quite idealism. It'd be more like uh, neutral monism. So the the distinction is that an idealist, uh, a pure absolute idealist, would say that the only thing that exists is mind or consciousness. And I'll make the distinction there. Mind is like the cognitive apparatus that we enjoy in our head. Consciousness is deeper than that. Like, like you, you wouldn't have mind without conscious awareness, but you could have a computer simulating mind-like stuff. That's what AI is doing. Right. Um, but if you, uh, a, a pure idealist has the problem in that if everything exists only in consciousness, then it leads to solipsism in the sense that the only consciousness you can really know about is yours from a, from a conventional perspective. In which case, if you want the universe to go away, just close your eyes. It's all gone. Well, that doesn't work very well because we know that, that that's not how things seem to work. So you can put yourself under a blanket and make everything go away, but it doesn't really make everything go away. So neutral modism is saying that it works for a two-year-old, you know. <laughs> it does, yes, and, and we are two-year-olds, so yes. that's why it works. Yeah. Uh, uh, neutral modism is saying that there is a reality to the material world. That, that you, we can't deny that it works too well. It has certain laws. It has regularities and so on. Maybe it won't be the same way in a billion years, but at least for now, it's pretty stable, and so it's something we have to contend with. But consciousness is real too. So they're both real. So this sounds like it's like dualist 
like mind and matter, two real things. And that the problem with dualism is that they, how do you, how do they interact? If they're really different from each other, they can't. So neutral monism is saying that they're arising out of something. Mm. So the arising out of, I'm saying, is pure consciousness. So it's not mind-like. It's just woven into the fabric of reality is this idea of sentience or awareness or something. And so mm -hmm. things arise out of that. That turns out to be very similar to the, the Indian philosophy called Sankhya, which mm -hmm. is yogic philosophy. And that all of these things come out of, base, out of mystical experience. People right. try to interpret what their mystical experience meant. And so neutral monism is one way to do it. And I guess it's something like that is what I'm thinking of yeah. uh, in terms of, uh, of how to think about why deep states of consciousness can give rise to manipulation of the world, for example. Because if, if the physical world is emerging out of something deep, and we are built out of that stuff, then we have the capacity to go that deep. If in the right frame of mind or consciousness, you are the universe. Right. So that sounds crazy from an everyday perspective, but that is what all of the esoteric traditions say. And I've, I've had a couple of experiences. So I started meditating in 1970 when TM was on a lot of college campuses. So I, I took my first training course in 1970 and I meditated different styles on and off, but mainly have been using Vipassana, mm -hmm. which today is of course popularized as mindfulness. Mm -hmm. So in, in roughly 40 or 50 years worth of meditation experience, I can say I maybe have, have experienced something like Samadhi or a Gnostic state, maybe about four minutes. So, I'm not talented, I guess, because I've practiced uh, quite a bit, but I, I find it very difficult to get in, to consciously get into that state. All of the, the, ex, all of the cases of where I felt like I, was, I had reached as far down as I could possibly get were spontaneous. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you want to be a magician, you have to do something to get there, mm -hmm. or at least to approach it. Right, so you can almost imagine that if it's this, if like here's the, the the surface level and there's the bottom, that the further down that you can get to that bottom state, the stronger your intentions and magical practices and whatever, the stronger it gets. And if you can reach all the way to the bottom, if you wanted to, in principle, you could create a universe. Hmm. Fortunately, it doesn't happen that often. <laughs> otherwise, and it's also fortunate that. It, there's many, any form of sentience has a capacity to do this. And so you imagine that there's uh, millions of meditators who are kind of floating down here somewhere. Their ability to do things becomes stronger and stronger. Fortunately, meditation tends to calm people down. And so <laughs> they're thinking they, they don't, they're not going to get into road rage. Yeah. Uh, but if, if it did happen, you had a civilization where people were very easily able to reach these deep states one would hope that they would learn very quickly about the golden rule and, and avoid black magic because it'll come back to bite you immediately. Uh, but let's say there was a civilization that did not, where we developed a pill that anybody could take and they become super psychic for eight hours. And then it becomes a very popular thing to do. We would last as a civilization for about a week right. because every instance of road rage would suddenly blow up highways and people being angry with each other would, would just stop everything. So there, it's fortunate that uh, it is not that easy to get down into these very deep states. And so because our consciousness is limited, the amount of power that we have with these cities is also limited. And the, the more we expand that consciousness, the byproduct you're saying will be one or a number of these abilities, clairvoyance, telepathy, maybe psychokinesis, they'll start to expand with that consciousness. Right. Yeah. We ran another survey with meditators asking about various kinds of psychic abilities and synchronicities and asked them, uh, did they think of which of these kinds of things, uh, from synchronicity to a broad range of psychic phenomena, which of these did they feel had been enhanced as a result of the meditative practice? 75% of the people said yes. So that matches the, the meditation lore as well. Right. That, that you, you start reaching deeper states and these things become front and, instead of living in the background somewhere. Yeah. 
And it seems in my experience that there is a kind of a safeguard to going to that level and tapping into that power because things like competition or ill will tend to pull you back up into the level of mind or emotion and which pulls you away from that deeper state. So on your journey down into that deeper state, you do have to become calmer. You do have to kind of strip away those ideas of power and control and competitiveness to really get to the deeper states. So it's, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. And yeah, me and Cody have been, our entire careers are teaching people how to develop their abilities in a safe, healthy way, in a grounded way. Mm -hmm. They don't go tripping out. Uh, a lot of people come to us and they're already tripping out. <laughs> they're like, hey, they're already open. Nightmares, yeah. these visions, these feelings, these precognitive pre dreams. I have no idea how to manage them or deal with the energy of them. And it's very rare to find a place where you can create a, a safe structure for someone to take those experiences and develop them in a way where they feel more sane uh, and more grounded. Usually it's the opposite. And I live in Los Angeles well, where you'll see a lot of the opposite. It just gets more out there, more trippy, more ungrounded. Mm. I think our whole goal of uh, what we teach in the podcast is to, is to create a safe grounded space for these kinds of abilities to uh, begin to really flourish. And I think the research you're doing, Dean, is amazing in helping people recognize that they can approach this. Right. Uh, and to apply them in a practical sense, in a practical way to enhance your own inner and outer life, really. No. Dean, have you ever had a precognitive dream of some kind that came true or a, a sense, a gut feeling, a vision, and then, it, and then it came true? Oh, yeah. Many, many cases. All of my psychic experiences started long after I actually started uh, studying these phenomena in the laboratory. So I think part of it was, part of the reason is that I just wasn't paying attention mm. when I was younger. And so when you, you start learning that there is such a thing as precognition and dreams, well, then you can pay attention to it and say, oh, well, that's what that was. Whereas beforehand, you might completely dismiss it as like, uh, that's meaningless. So one example is I woke up and I, I have a, a peculiar sense of vividness when I know it's a precognitive dream. Usually these dreams are about experiments that I'm planning to do. So if I get a, that particular kind of dream where I have a, a knowing, a certainty in the dream that this is going to happen, uh, I, I, I ha still have to do the experiment because I have to close the causal loop. <laughs> but, but I know it's going to work. And it, and it always does. It works exactly the way that the dream said it was going to work. But one time I woke up from this, that kind of a dream, and the dream was all about a car accident where the airbags inflated and there was the dust in the air and had a very palpable feeling of, of being in a, an accident. And so it was freaked out a little bit and in the morning and decided to drive to work a different way because the usual way I would drive is getting on the highway and you have a very short amount of time to get onto, up to speed with the rest of the cars and it's dangerous. So instead, I went to a different uh, entrance to that uh, had a stoplight, and then you had a long uh, road to get up onto the highway. So I go to that place. I'm sitting at the red light, and suddenly, bang, cars rear-ended. Only accident I've ever had, but it wasn't my fault. I was just sitting there. <laughs> so I brought the car to the body shop to, to get it fixed. I, I was telling the guy about this because I figured he hears a lot of accident stories. I said, well, I had a dream of this, but it, it wasn't anywhere near as bad as the dream. And he said, well, maybe you saved yourself from a much worse condition, but yeah. something had to happen. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the dream in the first place, which makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense. So it's as though you, you can navigate the future if you're paying close attention to your future, that you could have gone in this direction, which would have been a very serious accident, or slightly deflect it in such a way so that it was basically just a fender bender, which it was. Yeah. And, and because the alternative is, if you completely avoided it, well, then where did that dream come from? Right? It was like mm -hmm. a future that never happened. And so I suppose it's possible if the future is completely probabilistic. It seems more likely to me, though, that when you have a precognition that it is, it's you encountering your future in some way. Right. The nature of that future is not yet fixed, but mm -hmm. 
but something about it has to still be there. Otherwise, you, you wouldn't have had the emotional response to make it one of those particularly vivid dreams. Wow. Yeah, I had a dream of a plane going down and then it didn't crash and I woke up and I was really uh, dis- disturbed by it. So, and I texted Cody. This is before we were really friends. I, I knew him, but I just, re- I just decided to text him about it. And he goes, man, I just got off a plane. It was going down. The, what happened? The thing. Uh, the, we depressurized. and uh, depressurized. The things came down. You had to put them on your face, which like very rarely happens. Uh, and I was like, I have to text Cody about this one. <laughs> so, yeah. That one's well, that's a good point. That sometimes you can get a vivid dream about somebody else's experience. Right. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So, if you're listening to this and that happens to you, you are definitely not alone. Yeah. A very big club. Uh, that's so fascinating, Dean. I'm sure you have dozens. I, I'm. I can't imagine the amount of these stories that you've heard from people because I'm sure everyone who sees you is like, Dr. Raiden. Let me tell you about my telepathic. <laughs> what's unfortunate it's true i hear a lot of stories what's unfortunate is that most of the time it is either preceded or followed by the phrase and have never told anyone about this before right so that's a pity because the people have been holding on to these things and clearly it's very meaningful to them and they don't feel comfortable talking about it because they'll they'll think that somebody will think they're weird well maybe it is weird so what it's it's funny because They don't feel comfortable talking about it, but when someone does share that kind of story too, because I, you know, in our work, we get it all the time as well. They're very, it's very, they're very excited. They're animated. It's like, it's like the most exciting thing that's, that's happened to them. I mean, wouldn't life be so much more exciting if we could kind of live in that mystery and that magic and see it every day and interact with it? It seems to me it would. Yeah. And validate it. Um, and Dean, yeah. uh, so in terms of seeing the future, I've, I've heard you talk about how the, maybe there's a possibility that like one neuron, I think you were saying a neuron can see the, pro, in a quantum level, see the probabilistic future and, and kind of bring information back, which can create like a cascade into the body. So you've done studies where the screen will be black, right? And then you'll put an emotional picture on, but the physical body of the person will react to that picture with that emotion before mm-hmm. the image comes on the screen. Can, I, I, I was really fascinated about this one part though. Can you say a little bit more on the possibility of maybe, if it, is it a neuron even? I'm not sure if I got this right. That could maybe see into the probabil- probabilistic future. The thing about the neuron is that uh, a single neuron firing can cascade up to the, so it reaches the level of awareness. Mm. So a, a single neuron, uh, especially the synapse, uh, the synapses around the neuron are operating at the quantum scale. So it opens the possibility that there are phenomena which are not locked into space time around each neuron in the entire brain and, and the rest of the body as well, Whoa. which if if you imagine that there's a degree of perception that is happening at the level of these elementary cells, then yeah, we're sampling the future constantly, like every possible future all the time. Not much of it ever reaches the level of awareness, but it can. So when I, uh, oftentimes people will want to have 100% accurate uh, uh, three-dimensional high-definition movie-like experiences and that's not usually what happens. It's we hear that from our students a lot. Why yeah, didn't I get that experience? Why, why is don't it not I see 100%? it like I do with my eyes? And it's like, yeah. don't. So what I try to teach people then is to pay more attention to, your, to what your body is doing. Because your body is a reflection of deep mind. You can get there if you're meditating. You can, you can consciously get what's happening. But we're, if we're walking around like a normal person, it's very difficult to sustain that. But what you can get is... Your stomach feels funny. Your heartbeat is faster. Yeah. You know, so your eye is twitching. Sub, something gives away this, uh, the term is interioception. Mm-hmm. So an interesting study was done uh, that was, was published about a year ago now that looked at uh, day traders and to look at the profit of day traders in correlation to their degree of interioception. And they used mm-hmm. a very simple measure, which was can you – uh, can you feel your heartbeat? And so the way the, the test works is every time you feel your heartbeat, you, you press a button. And so, it, you, they, and of course, they're monitoring your heartbeat at the same time. And if it turns out you're accurate, 
you really can't feel your heartbeat, you have better interoception. Those day traders did significantly better than people who could not detect wow. their heartbeat. Hmm. So this, this then becomes a very simple way of saying you want to really increase your ability to feel what's happening around you, learn to pay attention to what your body's trying to tell you. Mm, I love that. And so, and Dean, so learn to pay attention to what your body's trying to tell you is a great way to start to develop some of your abilities and sensitivity. Would you have any other advice for anyone listening who's like, you know, I'm starting to meditate and want to open up to my abilities. How do I take my next step? Is there, is there a practice or a meditation that works for you? What works for me is Vipassana. Vipassana. Be because it, is, uh, it feels less demanding than something like the TM method or a mantra approach. Uh, I spend most of my time in, in my day job doing analytical work and, yeah. and writing and things like that. So I'm always doing high concentration. And I don't want to do meditation at this high concentration because it's like it's like a it's a bus man's holiday basically. I don't want to do that. So I'm trying to do the complete opposite. And vipassana, in many many ways, is the complete opposite of concentration meditation. It's it's open field with no no thoughts at all. Hmm. And so for me, that's very relaxing, and and it just feels better. Uh, the other thing that I'm finding uh, useful, actually, is uh, high-intensity interval training. Really? I'm too impatient to go to, to a gym for an hour and a half. Uh, I can do the equivalent of all of that in 20 minutes. It's completely exhausting, but it's designed to be that. What exactly do you do? So high-intensity interval training is uh, – there. Are some versions of it are very short, like 10 minutes. And it's, uh, you, you do something that is uh, either strength training or running in place like crazy or uh, doing as many sit-ups as you possibly can for short periods, like 20 or 30 seconds, and then you relax for 10 seconds. And then you do something else that for just completely flat out, like running sprints or something like that for 20 or 30 seconds, and then you relax. So if you look up HIT, H-I-I-T. Okay. You'll, you'll find lots of information on this. And the reason why it attracted me is because the health benefits are approximately the same for a 20-minute workout or even less than 20 minutes as it would be for an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm not going to spend an hour and a half doing this, You're but I want guy. the health benefits. Yeah. The secondary effect of, of doing a 20-minute flat-out exercise is that the, the uh, calm-down period afterwards feels to me, very much like a meditation because your body's totally flat and your mind calms down immediately afterwards. So my routine then in the morning is about 40 minutes. That's about as much as I can spend in the morning to do anything. It's the, this high intensity workout followed by about 20 minutes of calming down and letting my mind settle down as well. And the reason, and for me, it works because everybody has their own thing that, that, that they're going to do. Uh, so I uh, get a physical and mental workout in, in about 40 minutes every morning. That's wonderful. Wow. Well, uh, we're about out of time, Dean, but thank you so much for being here, for sharing all of your incredible wisdom. And is there uh, one place where all the listeners can find you? Uh, you could start at uh, deanradin.org or realmagicbook.com. They both end up in the same place. I also, uh, I'm on uh, Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn. And I know there are a couple of other platforms. I would spend all day long just being on all of them. If I, right. if I went on all of them. So I'm just on those main three. Great. And I mean, where I watch most of your stuff is YouTube. You've got so much incredible stuff on YouTube as yeah, well. Yeah, so a lot of the podcasts I do end up on YouTube. Yeah. I did a search the other day for my name on YouTube and it's like 10,000 things. I so, did wow. too. <laughs> I don't understand how it could that. be that many because I have certainly have not done 10,000 interviews, but I don't know. People are... Everyone tags you though. Every time someone posts something that has the word psychic in it, they probably oh. tag you. Um, <laughs> and uh, one big ask for you energy matters listeners. If you read real magic, do the really hard next step of reviewing it on Amazon. 
<laughs> yeah, even a sentence. Like one, one sentence. Like five words. Five words. Yes. That intention yeah. will ripple out into the etheric mind of the planet and do us all good. <laughs> and also for people who read the book, there is a hidden sigil in the book. There is? Yes. Mm, there, is a, there, there is a chapter where I'm talking about how to do practical magic and I'm talking about sigils, but there's a, a sigil hidden somewhere else in the book. Now I have to find it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thanks so much for being here, Dr. Dean Radin. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Hey, everybody. That was Dr. Dean Radin. And you know, the thing that I so enjoyed about that conversation is, of course, David and I are both practitioners. So we go inward through meditation. We move into these different states of consciousness. We don't necessarily study these states of consciousness. And to hear a scientific perspective on these experiences and to hear about some of these different um, experiments that are going on is really intriguing to me and, and kind of fun to talk about and listen to. Uh, it's also very validating to the things that we are already kind of practicing having experience with and awareness of and have been sharing as teachers for years. So this conversation could have gone on way longer. We did not go as deep as David was hoping we were going to go into extraterrestrials. He loves that stuff. Because <laughs> um, I am one. <laughs> we didn't get a chance to talk that much about uh, the Institute for Noetic Sciences, which is something I'm going to explore a little bit more online. Uh, what an interesting uh, space to, to kind of delve a little bit deeper into psychic awareness. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, and you can find Dr. Dean Radin at deanradin.org. All of his books are on Amazon, and he's got a gazillion videos on YouTube, one of which will be this episode. It's also in video if you're listening via audio. Uh, so check it out. And uh, that was incredible. For me, that was like meeting Captain Kirk or Jean-Luc Picard. If you don't know what that means, you better get up to date on your nerddom. Uh, <laughs> I was <laughs> my inner Star Trek nerd, my inner psychic nerd is, is so fulfilled right now. I can barely speak. All I want is ice cream, and I'm done for the day. I'm so happy. That was awesome. <laughs> that was awesome. And yeah, if you would I, like to yeah. find out more about working with energy, working with magic, really, now that he's kind of demystified that word, uh, I am not afraid to use it. Um, you know, check out our uh, Awakening to Energy series or our Intuitive Mastery series, which are now available uh, through our website, energymatterspodcast.com. And as you can imagine, it was really easy for me and Cody to get that content up on our website. It took like minutes. <laughs> it took like eight months for us to get it together. We finally did. So, uh, you know, there it is. Thank you guys so much for listening as always. That was, that was Dr. Dean Radin. Meditate, enjoy yourself, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye, everybody. You've been listening to the Energy Matters Podcast with Cody Edner and David Gandelman. Brought to you by intuitivevision.net and groundedmind.com. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or soundcloud.com. <laughs>